Hello, you found the bonus episode for this week's conversation with Mike Ryan. If you're looking for the main episode with Mike, which we suggest you listen to first, go back to your feed and select the episode titled Mike Ryan on a Taste for the Beautiful. Otherwise, you're about to hear a series of lightly edited outtakes from my conversation with Mike, separated by brief pauses. You can get in touch at animalbehaviorpod at gmail.com. Why do you study animal behavior? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Um, I lived in the Bronx until I was 10. And one usually doesn't think of the inner city as fertile grounds for growing up a naturalist slash biologist. But when I grew up, my parents would often take us, and us, there's 10 of us, I'm the oldest of 10, to um, the Bronx Zoo and to the American Museum of Natural History. And that was a, you know, that was a good escape from, uh, you know, from the city streets. But then we moved to a really rural area across the Hudson. And that was like ecological release. There were just animals everywhere. So we, we spent a lot of time in the woods and became really interested in natural history. So I went to uh, college to become a high school biology teacher. And it was in college that I then realized you could actually study natural history for a living, you know, as well as teaching. And so I study animal behavior because I've always been interested in nature. And I was always interested in, in watching animals, watching wild animals, especially um, in the woods around where I grew up. That is after, you know, after being 10 years old and escaping from the Bronx. The, the next one um, is about moths and their many attractive aromas. You write that moths have, I think, 100,000 distinct odor receptors, which upon first glance would seem like plenty in order for each species to have a distinct species-specific scent. But it turns out that it's not because there are 160,000 species of moths. So how do they solve that problem? So what they'll do is the moths will usually be using two different chemical signals, two different pheromones to advertise. And these are in the moths, it's the females are producing the signals. And this is how the males locate the signals. And they'll differ in the ratios. So in one species, they will have a ratio of 100 to one. And they'll usually have a number, there'll be a, uh, a bias in the number of receptors, the olfactory receptors, which are on the antennae in the body, between the receptors that detect chemical A versus chemical B in that ratio. So then when the responses from these olfactory receptors neuron when they get to the brain they'll be fine if they're if they're sensing a conspecific the same species they'll be firing a hundred times more to a than they are to b and it's this ratio that the moths use to determine whether that female is their species 
one thing I really like about the sensory exploitation hypothesis is that a basic assumption seems to be that, that the exact structure of an attractive signal is, from the male's perspective, arbitrary. It matches the, the hidden preferences of females, but, but what that is is going to be you know, context-dependent depending on the species. Um, because one of the puzzles of understanding sexual selection for me is why there are so many different ways in which individuals signal their attractiveness. Why hasn't there been more convergent evolution of indicators of quality? Um, and I think one tantalizing explanation is that before the signal evolves, receivers' preferences are, are hidden and highly species-specific. What do you think about that? Yeah, we know there's lots and lots of cases now where the what we call the preference space, the kind of traits that are attractive to females, many of those traits just don't exist in the males. So like with the tumor product, we can replace the tumor frog's chuck with lots of different sounds, even literally with bells and whistles. So we give the females a whine followed by a bell and a whistle versus only a whine, and they prefer the whine with the bell and the whistle, which to us sounds nothing at all like the uh, chuck. But it hits that sweet spot in the female's ear that the chuck does. And there's lots of ways to hit that sweet spot. Now, to make a chuck, you have to move back and forth a lot of air. Mm. So these males can't call much faster than once every two seconds. Now, the closely related species that don't make chucks, and we, we know in the larynx what you have need to make a chuck. It's a little ball of tissue that hangs off the vocal it's called a fibrous mass. And the species that don't make chucks have a tiny little fibrous mass. The tumor frogs have a huge fibrous mass. So the ones that don't have this fibrous mass, they can't make a chuck. What they do is when a female comes close, they increase the call rate, the rapidity at which they're making calls. And in those species, females are more attractive to to um, calls that are produced faster than calls that have a uh, larger interval interval. Now, the tumor frogs can't, like I said, they can't call faster than once every two seconds. But we, we, can, re we can play back the calls faster. Hmm. What we show is that the females do prefer, would prefer calls that are produced at a faster call repetition rate if the males could do that. So what we see in these frogs then is there's two evolutionary avenues to make yourself more attractive to females. One is making complex calls, adding chucks. You have to evolve something in your voice box to do that. But that's one evolutionary avenue to increase your sexual attractiveness. And the other is to increase the rate at which you call. And both of them make you make you make the males more attractive. But you can only use complex calls if you happen to evolve this morphology in your throat that allows you to do this. So I think so I think the sensory exploitation helps to explain why there are there's so much variation in sexually attractive traits. Oh. 
in in my conversation with Eleanor Caves, well, we've just talked about how, you know, it can be somewhat arbitrary, but in my conversation with Eleanor Caves, she talked about something that she sees as a major question for the signaling field, which is whether there's a relationship between signal form and information content. In other words, given some type of information that a sender wants to communicate, is there an ideal signal for communicating that information? And in that conversation, our focus was on, on visual signals, especially between species signals. Um, you give some examples in the book from non-humans and humans where the structure of sound does seem to correlate to function. Um, we talk a little bit about that, including maybe Eugene Morton's motivation structural rules. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, you know, that's a, a really good question. What's the constraint of information being related to uh, the signal form? And what this, uh, what this researcher, Gene Morton, suggested was what he called motivational structure. And Morton put, pointed out, most of his data were from mammals. And he pointed out that there was consistency in the relationship between the animal's motivation and the structure of the sound. And that when animals were being aggressive, they would be producing low frequency sounds that were very harsh that, and very loud. Because they were low frequency, without getting into the nerdy weeds, it would actually cause the vocal folds to vibrate in a technically chaotic manner. Mm. So that you're not getting tone, right? You're getting very noisy. So where's that coming from? Well, Morton points out, when you're in an aggressive encounter, selection would favor you to advertise yourself as being large as possible. And as we talked about with tumor frogs, with larger animals make lower frequency sound. So the idea is what, what aggressive males should do is try to make the lowest sound possible. And this, and he suggests this is probably a general trait among taxa. So what you do is you have convergence in animals using these same kind of aggressive signals. At the other end of the uh, of the spectrum, you have animals trying to make themselves appear submissive. So when they're in an aggressive interaction, when they uh, are giving up, when they don't want to be attacked, then they make these very tonal, very whiny sounds. And we've all heard animals do this, including humans. Uh, you know when. Dogs will often whine in those kinds of situations. And Morton suggested that they were probably imitating the sounds, not consciously, of course, but they were probably imitating the sounds of newborns. And when an animal is around a newborn, especially one of its own, it's going to tend to reduce its aggressiveness. And this gets back to uh, an idea that Darwin had in this third great book that he published on emotions in man and animals, where he had a theory called antithesis. And what Darwin said is that if you have signals that 
are related to the opposite motivational states, then there should be selection to make those signals as different as possible. So what Morton's suggesting is you get them making the low frequency signals, the fake aggressiveness, and these high frequency whiny signals to imitate um, newborns. But it could selection could actually favor only one of those outcomes. And then the other might arise just because it's maximally different uh, from the other balance. So, um, and we see that, and we see that in music too, right? We know that different types of music will evoke different types of emotion in people, right? So, uh, so it's not that different. I mean, and there, and people who study music have talked about various rules of uh, the relationships between different keys and different uh, the different emotional states it can elicit from humans. You talk in the book quite a bit about how, you know, time is limited too. Lifespan is limited. Females run out of time eventually. And so, you know, reducing search cost is a valuable benefit as well. Yeah. And, you know, there's this phenomenon called closing time. There's a study done by the psychologist, Penny Bacher. But what he showed is that in bars, he would ask men and women to rate the attractiveness of opposite gender, uh, opposite and same gender folks at the bar early on in the night. And then when it was, when the bar was going to close. And what he found is that our perception of sexual attractiveness changes with the night. And we become much more permissive as closing time approaches. And that's what we show with the Tumblr file. So if the females don't have a male by the end of the night, you know, they drop their eggs, they have external fertilization. They can't hang on to those eggs. They all they all come falling out of the female. So when we test the females early on in the evening with a call that we know will be unattractive, the females don't respond to it. When we test those same females at the end of the evening, or more like the early morning, 2 a.m., then the females go to that call. And they go to that call much faster than they would go to a normal call. They need, they need a male or they're going to lose all their reproductive investment into those eggs. And do you know if that is because their perception of the signal changes or is there a response the, or the response to the signal changes? Yeah, um, the short answer is that we don't know what we don't know is that the female's estrogen level increase. And the estrogen influences sexual motivation. So we're assuming, we don't know this, but we're assuming that the perception and the neural processing doesn't change, but this decision threshold, which is equivalent to motivation to make, that that changes in response to the estrogen. It is possible that the estrogen could be influencing the auditory perception as opposed to the decision-making threshold. We're guessing it's the decision-making threshold. So here's kind of an off-the-wall question for you. Um, 
you know, we, we tend to find colors quite beautiful as humans, and yet our bodies have so little. And in other taxa with color vision, birds and fish and insects, we get such dramatic variation in body color across and even within species. But we have none of that. And we don't even have stripes or spots or patterning. Um, but if you ask a person, you know, what's your favorite color? I think it's pretty uncommon for someone to respond with a color that's anywhere along the skin color spectrum or, or really even most of the eye or hair spectrum. And so the question is, why do you think there's this disconnect between the colors that we say we like and the form that our bodies have evolved? Well, I think, I think a lot of times people will say that their favorite color is blue. Mm. And most animal col colors, in most cases, the blue in animal colors is not due to a pigment. It's due to what's called the structural and it has to do with how wavelengths interact on the skin and then uh, how they come out, of, come out of, well, I shouldn't say the skin, it's usually feathers. Um, so on the one hand, I think our, our bodies are just limited to the kinds of colors that we could produce, but we also want to remember that, um, you know, a lot of, you know, we're descended from, a lineage that was mostly nocturnal, and mm -hmm. early on, probably might have might have only had one photopigment class. Uh, but a lot of, but I don't think there's other primates that have three. So we're coming from a lineage where there wasn't the neural substrate to perceive a lot of variation in color. You know, um, fishes and birds. They, and of course, a lot of insects, perceive a much wider spectrum of colors than we do and can probably resolve colors uh, a good bit better, a good bit better than we can. But I mean, I mean, the short answer, of course, is that I don't know. But I think we have to think of it from two angles, like we do of all of these uh, sexually selected traits. What are the constraints against? In, our, in this example, producing varied colors on our skin, number one. And number two, even if we could, to what degree would our visual system find some of those more or less attractive? Now, probably there, for us, there's not visual constraints because as you pointed out, we have a deep appreciation of colors, even though our own bodies don't, uh, don't express them. Now, for what it's worth, um, you know, Darwin wanted to explain variation in skin color in humans. And Darwin suggested that these, that variation in skin colors probably were not adaptations to different environments, but were just randomly, random sexually selected traits that different populations would find different skin colors more or less attractive. Uh, he's, he might be wrong. We do know that there are that there are adaptive advantages for having different skin colors in uh, in different environments. But uh, Darwin thought even the just the limited range of skin colors amongst human populations might be differentially attractive and vary amongst populations. Initially, kind of randomly, and then become fixed. 
And maybe a biological anthropologist would say, well, and of course, humans have evolved different different colors. They, they call them clothes, um, right? Like perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So when, you know, when we became hairless, did that, did that remove our abilities to make a lot of colors? Well, probably not because the colors in primates that we see are usually on the face or on the rump, right? And not on the fur. Right. I mean, there are, there are some, I mean, vervid colorless monkeys. And given, gibbons can have these beautiful white, uh, white fur patches. But even tamarins, right? Like they're very, they're, they're beautiful, but they're not very, they're not super colorful, right? It's still pretty, that's a pretty narrow band range of, of the spectrum. Yeah, like the golden tamarin has that beautiful uh, set of golden fur around it. Mm-hmm. But you're right. It's just one, you know. It's yeah. It's it's just one color. It's nothing like a guppy, right? 